Hello and welcome to another episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. It's our first episode of 2023, and we're also coming up on the one-year anniversary of the podcast. And I think, actually, uh, this episode specifically will be coming out basically on the one-year anniversary. So uh, just thanks to everyone who tunes in and keeps this thing going. I'm very excited to be speaking with our guest this week. She's a professor, sound engineer, and record producer who's best known for serving as the staff engineer for Prince, a role that she held from 1983 to 1987. With Prince, she worked on his biggest records, including Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Parade, and Sign of the Times. Outside of her work with Prince, she's also worked with artists such as David Byrne, Tevin Campbell, and the Bare Naked Ladies. Currently, she's a professor in the Music Production and Engineering Department at the Berklee College of Music. I'm very happy to welcome Susan Rogers to Guess That Record. How are you doing, Susan? I'm doing pretty good, Jackson. How are you doing? I'm doing good, yeah. So um, uh, where are we talking to you from today? I was just going to ask you the same question. <laughs> I'm in beautiful Cairo, New York. I semi-retired from Berkeley last year. I t- still teach some of the remote classes for them, but I moved out to the country out in the Hudson River Valley. Nice. It's really nice there. Really nice. Where so, are you? Uh, I'm in Calgary, Alberta. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that um, uh, like fairly close to, to New York City then for, for you? Uh, not really. 115, 120 miles as the crow flies. So if you know where New York City is on the map, the Hudson River goes from the Statue of Liberty straight up north toward Canada. Mm-hmm. And that Hudson River Valley is really beautiful. It goes through places like Poughkeepsie and Albany and things like that. And uh, okay. the valley is, uh, is, is really gorgeous. So that's where I live now. Nice. Nice. Um so I, I just want to say uh, that it's great to have you on the podcast uh, because I'm a huge Prince fan. So it's really cool to to get to speak with someone that that got to work with him so closely during his biggest era, uh, really, like most uh, best selling era for sure. Um, so, yeah, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much. I, I know how lucky I was that I got to spend so much time in his company and in particular while he was creating. That's a mm-hmm. huge thing uh, to be able to witness because he was such an extraordinary talent. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I read you're originally from Southern California. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. I was born and raised in Anaheim, California. Okay. Yeah. And uh, as I ask with all my guests, what was like the first album or song that sort of made you take music seriously or, or like the first moment that made you take music seriously? You know how some little kids are where they feel a certain strong attraction to something and they have no explanation for why? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a real mystery to me, but definitely I felt from the earliest age really attracted to music, more interested in it than in sports or other sorts of things. My brothers were the sporty types, but it was always music for me. So early musical memories include seeing the Beatles and the Rolling Stones on the Ed Sullivan show and getting my very first album and, you know, just putting records on uh, Peter and the Wolf, you know, a children's album, Walt Disney albums, and just listening to them over and over and over again. That awareness that 
I'm attracted to this. Uh, and did you play any instruments at all? Or is your musical background just from simply being a fan? Basically being a fan. So when parents see that they've got a kid that's interested in music, they say, oh, we've got to get our kid music lessons. And they bought a, a little piano and they had me taking music lessons. And I felt no attraction to it at all. I just didn't feel like I, I didn't, wasn't even interested in the performing of music. I was interested in the consumption of music. And I think that's what makes a kid a born record maker. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it is interesting because sometimes you do get like, you know, great producers and engineers who like have no musical background, whatever, or anything like that. I know um, Bill Simzik, who was the Eagles producer he has yes. like no he can't play an instrument he doesn't you know doesn't know how to play music at all but you know he knows how to make a great record so uh yeah, yeah. it's you can definitely that that does seem to happen from from time to time yeah early in my career before prince i was working for crosby stills and nash at their studio Hollywood and our regular assistant engineer was busy with them so uh i had to assist on a record by Stephen Bishop, mm-hmm, right. very successful years ago, and the producer was Gus Dudgeon, the British producer. Gus was known for all of those great Elton John records. He produced Elton in the heyday of Elton's career, and Gus has probably sold more records than just about any producer who ever lived. Uh, Gus was a non-musician, and I asked him in the studio one day, Gus, how is it possible for you to be a producer and not be a musician? And I remember he was lighting his pipe. And he just kind of gestured out into the, the into the live room, and he said, "Well, I don't need to be a musician, do I? The musicians are over there on that side of the glass. I need to be the non-musician in the room." And uh, that was a, an epiphany for me because I realized this might actually be possible. I might be able to do well despite not being a musician. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I read uh, that like when, once you sort of decided to, or I guess like from the timeline perspective, when, when did you decide to like get involved in the music industry in some way or another? Uh, it wasn't really so much a rational decision. It was an emotional decision. I made the mistake of getting married when I was 17 years old and it did not work out, which is great. That's exactly what I what, uh, uh, It couldn't have gone better. You know, of course, you get married and you think it's going to work out, but fortunately it didn't. So I left when I was 21 years old and never looked back. I embarked immediately on a career. I, I moved with a roommate to Hollywood, which wasn't that far away. And um, I began studying audio electronics, reading every book I could on recording techniques and uh, got hired by a company that wanted an entry level audio trainee. They trained me up and uh, in short order, I was repairing consoles and tape machines in the greater Los Angeles area, which is pretty uh, prestigious for a, a young woman in her 20s. I didn't realize it at the time. I was just doing my job. But now I look back on it now, I think, oh, good for you. You, you did good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so that, that company that you ended up at was Audio Industries. Yeah. Yeah. They, they sold and serviced MCI consoles and tape machines, which was the most popular brand. It would be like being an auto mechanic for Ford or Chevrolet vehicles. And just they're ubiquitous. Right. And um, so 
basically your job as a tech would just be to go around to studios and fix the machines that needed uh, maintenance, basically? Yeah, they'd call when they needed a service call, they being studio owners. They'd say, my console's down or my tape machine needs needs some work. And uh, myself and the other technicians, there were maybe four or five of us techs at one time, uh, we'd get sent out on a call with an oscilloscope and a great big parts box. And of course, our ever-present and beloved toolboxes. We loved our toolboxes. Um, uh, you go out on a service call and you'd have your manuals with you, you know, and you'd, you'd read the schematics, you'd trace down the where the signal was being lost, you'd replace the component, and off you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, being, of course, doing this in Los Angeles, where so much of the music industry is based out of, did you have any sort of, like, noteworthy calls where you, like, ran into someone well-known while doing a job? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know if your generation would know uh, the artist Bread. I've heard of, I've heard of Bread. Yep. Bread had so many hits Mm. in the 60s, early 70s, and they were primarily the singer-songwriter David Gates. And I went to his house and, I mean, there he was. There was the guy. Uh, He he just... uh, to, to actually be there having a conversation with someone who, uh, whose voice I'd heard on the radio for years. Lovely, lovely man. Really a lovely man. And if you read about David Gates now, you see that he had an exemplary career. I believe he's become a rancher or something like that. He's one of those people who just did the music business and then moved on and did other things. Right. Uh, Certainly, uh, members of the Eagles. I paid a lot of uh, ta- a lot of visits to Timothy B. Schmidt's house. Timothy B. wrote that song. I can't tell you why. Of course, yeah. Oh, Timothy B. Lovely guy. I remember um, one of the guys from Heatwave. Heatwave had that a couple of big singles, of Boogie Nights and Groove Line. And I remember going out um, on a service call. I met the lead singer, whose name escapes me, from. Uh, Heat wave, and I said, "Oh, I've been wearing the groove off your record. I play that record so much." And all of a sudden, sitting right in front of me, he just started singing. Wow! And, uh, it just, it, it just was was very, very thrilling. I met a, I met a lot of people that um, who I I heard on the radio and who I admired. And gosh, it felt great to be in their company and to be performing a service that they needed performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it is uh, funny when you bring up Timothy B. Schmidt, because uh, whenever I think about him now, because uh, I saw the Eagles in Calgary, uh, I want to say like 2018, I went to their show when they came here. And uh, it was interesting because uh, Timothy, he like broke his leg or his foot or something like that. So he played the show on sitting on a stool uh, with his cast on. Yeah, he was a he was or I assume still is a lovely, lovely man, and I liked his wife very much too. They would sometimes just have me come out to the house on the weekends to do uh, service calls off the books, kind of moonlighting. Mm. And uh, Jean, his wife, would always prepare lunch, and she just was lovely. Uh, good people. Nice, yeah. Um, and uh, as I or, or as you mentioned uh, a bit earlier, there um, you eventually become the maintenance tech for Rudy Records, which was the studio owned by uh, David Crosby and Graham Nash, which 
is kind of unfortunately relevant to mention because David Crosby just passed away a couple months ago. When you were working at that studio, it was sort of your first chance to to get to like engineer and do more than just being uh, a tech. Is that right? Yeah. So um, Rudy Records, one room studio, uh, was busy, booked all the time, and they kept inviting me to leave my job at Audio Industries and join them as their full time permanent studio maintenance tech. And eventually, one day, I said yes. I knew that this was going to get me closer to music making. Mm-hmm. And it did. So my duties were to keep that studio running. And they had a full-time assistant engineer, but Crosby, Stills & Nash were making the Daylight Again album. And it was a long, long, long process. So sometimes if Rudy would be booked with the Eagles or Bonnie Raitt or some other clients, CSN would go off to another studio taking the assistant with them. That gave me the opportunity to occasionally assist on some sessions, not often, but occasionally I did. And so I got to uh, watch producers and engineers work. Mm. And you, you mentioned Daylight again. And uh, what, what were some of the other, I guess, records that you saw being made while you were there? Oh, let me go back in time. There was that Stephen Bishop record. And uh, do you remember the, the movie Tootsie came out in 1982, I think it was, with Dustin Hoffman? I, I haven't seen it, but I know of it. It was an award-winning movie, and Stephen Bishop wrote the uh, title song for it uh, that was a huge hit. And uh, so Stephen Bishop at that time was very popular, and he came to the studio. And I did mention the Eagles and Bonnie Raitt. Um, We just lost recently the great David Lindley. David Lindley, an extraordinary, multi-talented session musician. David did his solo album there at Rudy. El Rayo X. Uh, that was that was thrilling. Folks like Al Cooper and uh, there's a lot of session musicians would come and do sessions there at Rudy. So I saw a lot of LA's finest in that soft rock, West Coast rock kind of scene. I, I was gonna say like yeah, the the royalty of soft rock basically in that studio. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking before we go further it might be good for the listeners to sort of explain or to explain to the listeners who might not be familiar with sort of the process of making records. Um, Like what, what does a producer do? What does an engineer do? And just like kind of the general recording process back then when it was all done on tape. Yeah. Um, The personnel involved in record making typically involved outside of the musicians, producer, an engineer, an assistant engineer, and then at the later stage, a mixer. The producer is analogous to the director on a film because the producer of all those four roles I just mentioned has the most creative control. The producer is not a dictator who determines how the record must go, but the producer is on the other side of the control room glass. And like a director on a film, they're listening to the performances and they're saying whether or not we got it. And they're coaching the performers to give more of this, give less of that, to change your attitude here, change your performance gestures there. So the producer is the first listener who is listening for the overarching sum of all these individual musical gestures. The producer is also responsible for style on a record. Uh, Should this 
part be done with a Stratocaster, with a Telecaster, with a Les Paul? Should it be done on an acoustic guitar? All these decisions contribute to the overall style of the record. Now, the engineer is responsible for the sound on a record and for routing that sound so that it comes from the sound sources, the musicians and the the program, drum machine, whatever it is you got, you take that sound and you have to get it to a storage medium. In my day, it was analog tape. Today, it's a computer hard drive. But you have to safely get it there and get it back and get it up through the monitors and make sure that um, it doesn't get erased or mangled and um, make sure that that sound quality is not distorted and that that sound is going to guide the listener's focus of attention where you want it to go on a record. For example, some records we listen to, and they are very much lyric-driven. You want to be paying attention to that singer. Other records, not so much. Uh, They're more driven by maybe their chord changes, or maybe it's just a big rock record, and the singer is just basically screaming. The lyrics are not as important there. The energy is more important. So the the engineer is, is manipulating the sound. They have a more technical role. The assistant is there to serve to serve the assistant engineer and to serve the producer and to serve the band. They serve everybody. Um, and then the mixer is the one who's kind of in between the producer and the engineer. When the record's all recorded, you got all the parts down, the mixer then takes those individual pieces and through a beastly difficult skill, taking years to master the engineer learns how to put all those pieces together so that a global whole emerges. It has some parallels with an editor on a film, although the mixer's role uh, may be more important in the sense that uh, a mixer can make or break a record. Mm -hmm. Bad mixes, that record's not going to get listened to. Great mixers can take a, a mediocre record and elevate it. So all three of those jobs are ever so slightly different, requiring different skills and different uh, types of knowledge. You know, like just great description. And, you know, as as a musician myself who, you know, like largely listens to music from like the 60s through the 80s, um, you know, it's so fascinating to to learn about the process of, you know, how records were made back in the day, because it's just it's so different. And I hate to be like, I don't want to be one of those, like I was born in the wrong generation type of people, (laughs) but, uh, the records did sound better back then. It analog is, is superior to digital as far as I'm concerned. So it's always cool to, to hear how records were made back in the day. I love analog. And it's funny that nostalgia for a time that you didn't really live through. I feel that way about the big band music of the 40s and certainly the bebop jazz of the 50s. I wish I could have been around and seen Frank Sinatra at his prime and Duke Ellington and Count Basie. And if I could have just seen Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and and all that. Yeah, you do feel like you missed out, but we've got those records, so we can always listen to those records and imagine that we were there. Yeah, it's kind of also like how uh, bands like Led Zeppelin loved the blues from the the 30s and 40s as well. So, yeah, exactly. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Guitar Works. 
One of Canada's top independent music stores for over 30 years, GuitarWorks carries a huge selection of musical instruments from the biggest brands in music, including Gibson, Fender, Martin, Yamaha, and Paul Reed Smith. Visit any of their three Calgary locations or shop online at guitarworks.ca and join the Guitar Perks program to earn money back with every purchase. GuitarWorks, your total guitar store. This episode of Guess That Record is also sponsored by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing company headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, working with clients in different industries from all over North America, including Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Marvel Marketing services include website design and development, website maintenance, search engine optimization, public relations services, and social media management, amongst others. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. This episode of Guess That Record is sponsored by Recordland, home to the largest selection of music in Canada. Buy, sell, and trade tapes, CDs, and vinyl. Located in Calgary's Inglewood neighborhood on 9th Avenue Southeast, visit them in person or online at recordlandcalgary.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at recordlandcalgary. When you were, I guess, going back to your story here, when you were at Rudy Records, uh, that was when you got the offer to work with Prince. So how did that come together for you? Um, Prince was coming off of his 1999 tour. He had gotten the green light from Warner Brothers to do a semi-autobiographical movie of his life, which is just crazy because the guy was just turning 25 years old. Yet Warner Brothers believed in him and they said yes. So he was planning Purple Rain, the movie and the album, and of course the big tour that was going to follow that. And um, he was a star after 1999, but not yet a superstar. Mm -hmm. So he knew his home base in Minneapolis needed um, an infusion of the pro audio industry, at least technically to help him be able to hang and prepare all this material for the movie and for the album. So he asked his management company, find me a technician and make sure it's somebody from New York or LA, a permanent technician to move out to Minnesota. The first thing his LA based management did was contact Westlake audio sold and serviced audio equipment in LA. And they asked Glenn Phoenix, the president of Westlake, do you have a technician? Do you got anybody who's willing to go to Minnesota and be this guy's tech? So Glenn went back into the tech shop and asked the guys, does anybody know anybody? And right away, uh, my ex-boyfriend, John Sacchetti, who was a tech at Westlake, right away said, oh, Sue, she wants that job. That's for Sue. Sue's perfect for that job. Uh, John had a thick Boston accent. He called me Sue, which most people do not do. (laughs) John called me right away and just said, Sue, your dream job is waiting for you. Prince is looking for a technician. Call Glenn. Tell him you want that job. When I got that phone call, it changed my life. And I told John, tell Glenn to call off the search. That is my job. I'm getting that job. And right away, I contacted Glenn and I said, I, I want that gig. They interviewed me. His management interviewed me. We agreed on terms. And I just assumed that all these technicians were going to want that job. But uh, really, they didn't. Uh, the technicians who worked in L.A. were in the catbird seat. They They were working in the entertainment capital of the world. There's no way they're going to leave and go work for this guy. But I was a huge Prince fan. I'd seen him on tour, times he'd come through LA, had all his records. I was female. He liked working with women. 
I was a technician who knew my stuff. So it was kind of the perfect alignment of the stars. He needed someone just like me. I was a rare bird, just like him. And uh, we found each other. So off I went. You know, I have to imagine that moving from California to Minnesota would have been a bit of a culture shock for you. It was different, but boy, I loved it instantly. Oh, I loved it, loved it, loved it. I loved the the prairie. I loved the people. I loved um, just just the pace of it, and it. I loved it then, and I, and I loved it to this day. I've never fallen out of love with Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it was 1983 when you when you move out there, and. Um, at that time, from sort of what I was researching and stuff, uh, Prince, uh, basically his studio was just in his house. Um, so is that kind of where you uh, you set up shop and, and got started on, on working there? Yeah, we had two bases of operation in Minneapolis. His home, and it was just a split-level suburban home on a cul-de-sac in Chanhassen, Minnesota, Belonged to a family that had three or four kids, I think. It was like a four-bedroom, five-bedroom home. So he had uh, a one-room studio, which is essentially just a bedroom, a kid-sized bedroom, across the hall from his master bedroom. That was that was a studio where he did a lot of the Purple Rain album. He had started it before I arrived. And then our second base of operation was the warehouse where we rehearsed. It was down the road a little ways. And... Um, it's where all his gear was. It was just an industrial manufacturing warehouse. There's nothing fancy about it at all. It wasn't a permanent base of operation. He would eventually build Paisley Park Studios. So we were working and making this record, Purple Rain, under conditions that um, were very uh, ad hoc, uh, things that were just, just put together in order to allow signal to flow. Prince's competition at that time was Michael Jackson, who happened to be working at Westlake Studios out in Los Angeles and uh, working with Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedean and the best studios, the best producer, the best engineer in the world. And Prince was uh, competing with Michael, working at a home studio in a warehouse with no producer and an engineer who was his technician. Way to go. Yeah. It's, Way um... to go. It, it is uh, it is kind of crazy to think because I mean Purple Rain's such a great sounding album and to to think it was done in those conditions it's kind of crazy and um, it's also funny you you bring up uh, Michael because the last episode of the podcast that I did was uh, with David Page from Toto who of course worked on Thriller uh, quite a lot so uh, that's that's cool to to bring up that record and now and now I'm talking to someone who was on the the competition. Re- album i guess yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the very fact of of that is just one of the many reasons why i admire prince so greatly he had a lot of moxie mm-hmm. and he knew that his musical ideas could compensate for the lack of uh, technical prowess that we had going on on that record now, much of or some of purple rain anyway was was done at sunset sound sunset Los Angeles is one of the world's finest recording studios. So it's not like we were totally working at home or under impoverished circumstances. But uh, wherever there was musical instruments and recording equipment, Prince could make music. Yeah. He didn't worry about the technical details being imperfect. Yeah. Didn't slow. 
And I, I appreciate the fact that he did stay in Minnesota for most of his career when he could have easily moved to LA and uh, just uh, been based out of there. I, I really appreciate the fact that he stayed in his home and uh, and where he came from, kind of like how Bruce Springsteen never left New Jersey as well. Uh, Prince uh, was a shy person in a sense that he didn't make small talk. He was uncomfortable with that kind of with 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 personal attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very very comfortable on stage, like a lot of performers are. But there was no way that he wanted to be part of the Hollywood celebrity crowd or the New York celebrity crowd for that matter. No way. It did not feel comfortable to him at all. Now, I understand that once you started working there, you didn't actually meet him for for quite a while when you first got there. Is that right? Yeah, it was quite a few days, maybe even a week. So if you can picture this, if you... uh, park your car in the driveway of his house at that time. Uh, You can either go up a little rise, uh, walk up some stairs, cross the lawn and go up to the front door or go in through the garage, which is at a lower level. And then from the garage, you can enter into this bedroom recording studio. So that's what I was doing. I was working in that studio, repairing his console tape machine and and gear. He he needed a new console installed actually. So the old one had to come out, new one had to be had to be put in. So he's up above me. Directly above me is where the kitchen meets the the dining room and his piano is right there. So I can hear him up above me taking meetings with band members and with members of Vanity Six and I can hear them dancing and laughing and talking and they're planning this movie mm-hmm. and uh, I still haven't actually met him because I'm coming in through the garage. And when I'm done at night, I'm leaving through the garage. Uh, studio door is closed. So I'm not seeing his comings and goings in and out of his master bedroom right on the other side of that door. So anyway, after about a week's worth of work, I let his house manager know. Her name was Sandy. Sandy, I'm done. Um, I'm done. What does he want me to do next? And she called Prince and He came downstairs and we had our very first conversation on the landing of the stairs. Mm -hmm. It was memorable for me because he didn't even say hello or nice to meet you or anything. He didn't introduce himself. He just came and he just right away started asking me questions. Have you done this? What's going on with that? What's happening here? And uh, I answered those questions. And then he said, okay, come back tomorrow. Gave me a time. He turned around to go and I don't know, something, uh, some instinct told me, don't let it start like this. Don't let this be the way it starts. It just felt wrong. And um, I had just moved 2,300 miles, leaving every human being I knew in order to move to this new place. And there's no way that he's, that I'm going to do this and he's not going to know my name. Mm -hmm. So I turned around to leave and I just stopped him. I just said, Prince, he turned back around and said, yes. And I just said, I'm Susan Rogers. <laughs> and I stood my hand out to shake hands with him. Just a moment of saying, remember, always, we're both human. And, and, and always will be equal on that level. From here on out, it's an unequal relationship. He's the boss and I'm the employee. He can fire me at any time, but I can quit at any time. So that little moment um, ended up being important to me personally. I'm glad I did it. 
Yeah. So when uh, when you brought or when you were brought in uh, to be on Prince's team, it was really as a tech. But how did that sort of change into becoming sort of his engineer? Yeah, it changed pretty quickly. I anticipated I was just going to be in a technical role, but um, he didn't see it that way. And I remember shortly after that first meeting, he asked me to set up a vocal mic and put up a tape. Okay, uh, putting up a tape, not a problem, but setting up a vocal mic, that's an engineer's job. Technicians don't do that. Of course, we know how to. That's not the problem. It would be like on a movie set, having the person who repairs the camera suddenly get behind the camera and start framing the shot. Right. For the cinematographer, you don't do it. Huge violation of protocol. So yeah, he asked me, so I set up this mic and I kept thinking at any moment now an engineer is going to come in and going to be mad at me for setting up this mic, but I'm going to have to explain, well, he's my boss and he asked me to do it. And then uh, finally, uh, 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 no one was showing up and I asked him, uh, well, who's going to record it? And he said, you. (laughs) And that's when I realized he either doesn't know or he doesn't care the distinction between a a maintenance tech and an engineer. So either way, I'm, I'm going for it. And I sat in that chair and did the best I could until my skill set improved to where I actually could call myself an engineer. Right. And um, so you mentioned that uh, like Purple Rain had kind of already gotten started. What tracks did you sort of work on um, for, for that album? Well, it's hard to say with any specificity in some sense because we were simultaneously making a movie Mm -hmm. along with making this album. What that means is that uh, some things were done and in the can. Darling Nikki was done, mixed, finished, never touched again. But other things kind of changed. He played around quite a bit with um, The Beautiful Ones and Computer Blue. Uh, when I joined him, he had just done the famous August 3rd, 1983 show at First Avenue mm-hmm. in Minneapolis. And it was recorded in a mobile recording truck. David Z was the recording engineer. So one of the first bits of engineering I did with Prince is we took those large 14-inch reels with the whole live show on it and cut out individual songs, put them on smaller reels so that we could add overdubs to them and continue working. There were just some embellishments that needed to happen on things like I Would Die For You and Baby I'm a Star and um, Beautiful Ones, things like that. So we went back and forth on a number of different different records. The song Take Me With You was done entirely out at Sunset Sound. Um, Purple Rain itself was done partially on stage at that First Avenue show, but there were other embellishments that Prince added afterward in post-production, and I can't remember exactly what they all were. Same thing with uh, Wind Doves Cry. That that was completed out at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles, but editing and things like that happened afterward. You'd want to release a single version, and then there'd be an album version. And sometimes he'd want to do an extended, longer version. So we we puttered around on that album quite a bit. Right. Yeah. And that's actually um, I I wanted to ask sort of like you know what was the timeline of of that whole project like because of course you got the movie and uh, the record. And it sounds like I guess it was going on at the same time. Um, and I, I I wanted to ask about the movie. 
Um, did you like, were you ever on set? Like, did you ever see them filming it at all or? I was on set nearly every day because I was providing the, um, the tapes, the quarter inch playback tapes for the Nagra tape machine that was used when we did musical scenes. Mm. And also because Prince needed me while he was on set to be back at the studio preparing certain pieces for one thing or another. So I was constantly going back and forth on the set. Um, There was a sound engineer who was responsible for bringing the Nagra and playing back, but I was responsible for bringing those tapes. And of course, setting up the playback system for for these the live concert scenes. Some at First Avenue, uh, we were able to book the facility to to shoot parts of the movie. And of course, his uh, his stage crew at that time, the home stage crew was myself and one other person. <laughs> Hawkeye was his name, Rick Hendrickson. But it was just the two of us. So to set up all Prince's gear and the mics and everything like that, I, I, I was part of all that. We had to do some pickup scenes out in Los Angeles in the springtime of 84. And I, w- I was part of that as well. Nice. Working on a soundstage in L.A. So, yeah, I, I was there. I was there. <laughs> That's cool. Contributing in whatever way that I could. Yeah. Uh, on- on the Purple Rain album, he thanked a lot of people, and I was one of the people he thanked, and thanked them for specific contributions, and he thanked me for my energy. <laughs> I remember one moment we were out in Los Angeles. It would have been January, February, maybe, doing pickup scenes for the movie. We were at the Complex Studio, so we had to make the Complex soundstage look like First Avenue, and um band was on stage and there was fog machines for that particular scene. I don't remember what the song was, but there were fog machines. Fog machines leave an oily residue on the stage. Mm. So Prince was slipping on stage and uh, he complained about it. He, he couldn't, he couldn't keep his grip with, he needed the fog. And I remember standing there and just realizing I got something. And I, I ran out to the front and there were planters out there and I grabbed up handfuls of dirt <laughs> came running back in and just threw dirt on the stage, this dark brown dirt that wouldn't show with the black uh, stage covering. I just threw the dirt there. And I, 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 it just seemed like the right thing to do. My boss needed something and I did it. And I learned later from his operations manager, Alan Leeds, that he approved of that sort of uh, proactive thinking. If there's a problem, don't suggest a solution. Don't ask if you can solve it. If there's a problem, just do it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Do it. It worked, and he was happy with that. Little things like that. He appreciated that extra effort. Yeah, and I uh, sort of going back to the music side. I did want to ask because um, uh, uh, when Doves Cry is sort of famous for not having any bass on the track, do you sort of know how uh, that decision came to be to not have bass on the song? Just trial and error. The original version of that song was very heavy, distorted guitars and distorted timbres. It was a big, heavy thing. I think Prince may have been aiming for something that was a cousin of Purple Rain. In other words, a a rock song more than anything that was a pop song. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty heavy, but the real heavy timbres just did not go with uh, the lyrical message, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. 
distorted guitars don't sound anything like doves. Yeah. So at some point he realized that this distortion is all wrong. Strip it all back. Keep the chord changes. Keep the drum pattern. And make it a lighter, more percussive arrangement. After he made it a lighter, more percussive arrangement and added his vocal and the counter melody, he realized... Uh, no need for bass. There's no role for bass. In fact, bass would actually drag it back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to keep it kind of light. So he just muted. He put bass on it, but then he muted the bass and didn't use it. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, overall, Purple Rain for me would be my favorite Prince album, which, you know, might be a cliche choice, but I'm not afraid to pick an artist's like best selling album as my favorite because, you know, the reason why it sold so much was because the songs are so good. Um, you know, it's like that you don't skip any song on that album. Uh, and you know, it, it, cause, uh, when doves cry and let's go crazy, were both number one hits purple rain, I think hit like number two on the hot 100, you know, it was like a defining album of the eighties. So, you know, like how, how does it feel to see how acclaimed it is and know that like you played a role in, in the making of it? Yeah, it feels very proud. I feel very proud. Um, Rolling Stone magazine released their uh, the second edition of their 500 greatest albums of all time. I think they came out in 2022, and I'm proud to have two albums in the top 50. Number eight, <laughs> Purple Rain, and number 42 was Sign of the Times. Sign of the Times was considered Prince's other masterpiece. I couldn't agree more, and uh, I recorded... Uh, I worked on both of them mm-hmm. and um, I'm very proud to have been associated with him during a very fertile and productive period in his life. Yeah. And, and of course it's also uh, a movie and, you know, I, I don't know if Prince, like if, if this was sort of the idea, but I think that it was such a great concept for a film because it's right when MTV is getting big and in those days, you know, music videos could be insanely expensive to produce. And I kind of, I don't know, once again, I don't know if this is what they were thinking, but I like how they basically, instead of making just, you know, three music videos for a couple million or whatever, they said, let's take that money and make a full movie out of it. And then just sort of cut the the music sections out and we can put that on MTV. And then we've also got something in the theater. I'm I'm kind of surprised uh, more people didn't try something like that because it. Uh, I'm not really sure. That's a that's an interesting thought, and I'm not really sure um, of if that's how the idea for the movie came along. Uh, I think, it, to the best of my knowledge, it was intended to be a movie, storytelling movie first, mm-hmm. and of course, quite naturally, with live music scenes, lent itself to music videos. Of course. Um, Prince uh, had not a lot of books around his house, but some of the books that he had involved um, just books of old Hollywood and movies and things like that. He was very interested in movie making. He didn't do it very well, but uh, <laughs> he, he, he did, in collaboration with others, more experienced, managed to make a good movie um, from Purple Rain. Of course, yes. And... Before I get into the the other records you worked on with Prince, uh, I just wanted to sort of learn more about like what it was like to record with him in general, because it's very well documented how he would, you know, basically play everything 
Um, you know, he, he was the producer. He, he knew like almost exactly what he wanted. So like what, uh, and of course a very strong work ethic. So, you know, with him doing his thing and you doing yours, what, what was a, a session like with Prince? There were several different kinds of typical sessions. So a typical session could involve the band at rehearsal um, with his band, his wonderful musicians. He would have a song and they'd work out the arrangements for it. A good example is um, Strange Relationship. Strange Relationship ended up on the Sign of the Times album, but that was one that they worked on that for years, trying different approaches to it. It nearly ended up on the Around the World in a Day album. It wasn't quite ready. So things like that, uh, many pieces he worked out with the band on stage. We always had recording equipment at rehearsal. So whatever it was they came up with when, when the arrangement was ready, I could hit the record button and there you go. Uh, on Around the World in a Day, the song America came about at rehearsal. The song Raspberry Beret was at rehearsal. So, yeah, a lot of things were done at rehearsal. That was one way of working. We worked really long and hard uh, on those days. But when we worked in the recording studio, there were kind of two sorts of sessions. One session would be where he didn't particularly have a song going in. He just wanted to make music and he would come into the studio. All of his stuff would be all set up in advance. He'd call me or he'd leave a note on the console saying what he wanted set up. So he'd come in and he just might stand at the drum machine and just play with the drum machine, coming up with a groove. Those were records that often ended up being dance records, the more funk kind of stuff that started from a rhythmic base of groove. Another type of studio session, however, was where he had written a song and he came in to record that song. That would generally be written on piano, sometimes on guitar, but nearly always on piano. And things he had written on piano, sometimes you do it with drum machine, but uh, quite often it would be done with acoustic drums. Uh, a good example would be the song The Cross mm. on, um, on the Sign of the Times album. Right. He played the drums, acoustic drums, top to bottom. Then he put on the bass, and then he would put on the other instrumentation. He's doing every single thing on that record, except uh, any horns that might come in on that or any other record. Uh, horns would be Eric Leeds and Matt Bliston on trumpet. Mm. And, of course, it, once, you, once your record turns a corner and you kind of know what it is, then you know, do you want female backing vocals on it? If so, you can call Wendy and Lisa, you can call Susanna Melvoin, call Jill Jones, have people come down to the studio and do backing vocals. He can slow down a little bit. He uh, was only too happy to play every instrument himself and just keep the pace going really, really fast. Right. And did he ever like ask for your opinion on things? Like, you know, how should we record this? How do you, how do you think this sounds? Or was he uh, did he usually just sort of stick with his vision? <laughs> he usually stuck with his vision, but he did ask. Sometimes I wondered if he asked just to see if I was paying attention, which of <laughs> course it was. But sometimes he'd, he'd ask, he'd ask what I thought. He knew I was a fan of his music. He knew that I listened to his competition, that the records he listened to were the same sorts of records I listened to. So yeah, he'd ask. Moving along here, you, uh, you know, it, uh, it it's really cool how, you know, you got to be right in the middle of this basically entire scene that 
Prince like single-handedly created in, in Minneapolis. Cause you know, of course there was uh, uh, the, the members in his band, like Wendy and Lisa, who ended up having their own successful career and Morris day in the time. And there was a lot of people that Prince sort of had under his wing. So what was it like to sort of work with, with, or get to know those other people that I'm sure were around a lot? They were all very talented musicians. Prince had an eye and an ear for talent, that's for sure. There was also a constant um, bit of struggle there as well because these musicians weren't freelance, so to speak. So Michael Jackson is working with session musicians who work on other people's albums, who come and go as they please. But Prince had people on retainer. So the revolution, the time, those folks worked exclusively for Prince, mm -hmm. which made it difficult for artistic, creative people sometimes who yearned to break free on their own. Problem is, of course, if you break free on your own, are you going to ever be as successful as you are right now? You don't, you don't know. So everyone in his retinue had to make that choice for themselves. Should they stay or should they go? And you also got to uh, go on tour with Prince quite a lot to like record shows. So what was uh, what was it like being on the road with with those guys? So I was his full time employee, and as his full time employee, I went wherever he went, whether it was on tour, or on a video set, or on a movie set. Wherever he was is where I needed to be because he always needed either playback or recording somewhere. Uh, tours were were wonderful. They were thrilling. They were hard work, not nearly as hard as the recording studio life. I got to sleep a little bit on tour, mm -hmm. but Prince was just such a monster. So most artists will sound check for 20, 30 minutes. All they need to do is take the stage, check something from the night before, let the sound crew know that, yeah, their, their stuff is working, and then they're done. But Prince would typically sound check for four hours. He'd take the stage as soon as we could get the PA up. He'd take the stage, sound check for hours. And then he'd play, of course, his set for three hours or whatever. And then afterwards, he'd either want to go to a recording studio to work or he'd want to go play an after party. He'd want to go to a club, take the stage again and play until the sun came up. So as I said, if he was awake, he wanted a musical instrument in his hands. And if he had an instrument in his hands, he wanted to be recording it. Mm. So I, I was with him during all of that, whether he's playing an after party, I've got to set up the stage because I was part of the skeleton crew of his full-time employees. And um, if he's in the recording studio, of course, we're recording, working on a Sheila E album, let's say, or a, a Time album while on tour. It was it was it was hectic and it was thrilling at the same time. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, I never got to see Prince live, unfortunately. But you know, I would say, like, as a performer, like I'd say, him and Bruce Springsteen are the two guys that I try and emulate the most on stage, just from an energy perspective. You know, because it's just like it's it's so thrilling to to see performers who are that energetic on stage i'll never be as good of a dancer as prince though i'll just i'll say that right away but <laughs> it uh yeah he's he's a, a really big influence um on stage and going back to the albums of course after purple rain we have around the world in a day and the the interesting thing which i wasn't really aware of until doing research for this was that 
this was basically a record that was finished uh, like by the time Purple Rain had come out. Um, but of course, it was held back from release um, uh, so that it could sort of have its own release cycle, basically. Um, so I have to imagine when once you started working on on Around the World in a Day, you and Prince were in a pretty good rhythm from a working perspective. Yeah, we were at a new warehouse, a bigger one, and uh, we had our we had our system, our methodology quite dialed in at this point. He had a lot going on, but not nearly as much as when he was on the movie set day in and day out. So the movie's post-production, it's soon to be released. The Purple Rain album is soon to be released, but there's going to be a tour, of course. He's got a plan for a tour, but he's got Prince still not busy enough. Yeah. <laughs> he's still got a little bit of time, so he can be making a time album and he can be recording. As they're rehearsing for the Purple Rain tour, He's coming up with new songs. He was very hyper-creative, so new songs are coming all the time, and he wants tape on that machine, and he wants to be recording them. So as I said earlier, we did long rehearsal versions of things like Possessed and Irresistible Bitch and um, Strange Relationship and many, many, many titles. They would just play for 30, 40, 50 minutes. Um, while we're doing all this and new songs are coming along, we've got we've got recording equipment there. So we're recording. And ultimately that we had enough material to become the around the world in a day album. And, um, the, the big hit from around the world in a day was of course, raspberry beret, which I, I would consider one of my favorite Prince songs. Um, I love how it's, you know, it's such an eighties track, but it's also got this kind of sixties psychedelic, uh, influence to it, which really makes it stand out. Um, and, and there's so much going on with that song. So what, what was the process like of, of making, making that song and putting all the elements together on it? Came together at rehearsal, uh, working out those parts with the band. Uh, lyric writing, he refers to Old Man Johnson's Farm. And Prince told me that uh, the Johnson, he got that name from Jesse Johnson. That's when Jesse Johnson, he and Jesse had a fight and Jesse decided to leave the time as the times guitarist and they fought and, um, and Prince uh, used the name Johnson in that, in that song. I think it's one of his most beautiful lyrics. Thunder drowns out what the lightning sees. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful mm -hmm. imagery. You know, the band lightning seeds, thought he was saying lightning seeds and they got the title of their band from that. Anyway, uh, Prince asked Lisa Coleman to write the string arrangement for it. And she was, she was utterly thrilled. So she brought in from Los Angeles, her brother, David Coleman on cello, Novi Novog on viola and Susie Katayama also on cello. So the three of them came in and uh, Prince left us alone to do our thing. I recorded it and Lisa conducted it and uh, Wendy was right there as well. And we had a really nice time. It's a lovely, lovely string arrangement from it, Lisa. It is. Yeah. And I, I think the strings kind of help bring in that sort of psychedelic element to the song really in, in a lot of ways. Um, this, I would like to say the psychedelic element was in part uh, due to Susanna Melvoin, who was Prince's girlfriend at the time and Wendy's twin sister. Susanna was turning Prince on to records he wouldn't have heard as a kid growing up in North Minneapolis. She was turning him on to Led Zeppelin, turning him on to the Beatles and uh, a little bit of that psychedelic era 
which was inspiring the cover of Around the World in a Day and inspiring some of his musical gestures on that album. Of course, yeah. And, um, you know, so the album then comes out. It wasn't as huge as Purple Rain, but it still hit number one, still sold very well. Um, And then after that, he goes to make another movie, which is under the Cherry Moon. And it, of course, includes the soundtrack Parade, which I don't own physically, unfortunately, so I can't pull up the album. But uh, uh, I've never seen the movie, but I heard it wasn't great. Um, And uh, but the album uh, did much better. And the one track I wanted to ask about was Mountains, because that's like my favorite song from that record. And it's an interesting song because it was written by Wendy and Lisa initially and they kind of had to fight to get that song on the album from from what i've understand i don't remember any fighting about it because he loved it uh, i mean i, I uh, can't remember maybe, everything maybe that was exaggerated from what i have seen but yeah. yeah if that came from them then it might have been true but boy I, he, he loved it so what happened was uh, Prince was on the uh, set of the movie Under the Cherry Moon, which was filmed in the south of France. And right around uh, American Thanksgiving, right around November thereabouts, we had um, a little bit of time. And he sent Wendy, Lisa, and myself to London. He got us a flat. He got us a, a, a car and a driver. He gave them some money to go to Harrah's and go go shopping, uh, get some clothes that they could wear in the video. But mainly what he did for us is he booked us some time in a recording studio. He booked us time at AdVision Studios, and he told Wendy and Lisa, come up with something, and of course told me to record it. So Wendy got out the drum machine, and she came up with Mountains, the basic riff for Mountains. We recorded that. Lisa recorded the gorgeous piano piece that became the song Power Fantastic, uh, a little, a little bit later on on another album, but uh, we had mountains as an instrumental. We brought bro- both those pieces back to Prince, and we wrapped up in France. We came home to Minneapolis, and right away at rehearsal, um, Prince had the band working on mountains. They added the horn parts. Prince wrote lyrics to it, and just loved that track. Mm. He, he he really loved it. I, I can't I can't even picture a scenario where they had to fight to get it on the album because. It was it was one he clearly loved. Okay. Loved. Yeah. Well, I'm that. Uh, I guess uh, it's good to talk with someone who was there, because <laughs> yeah, I, that that was sort of what I picture. I, I think I was also probably thinking of of in the Purple Rain movie, like how uh-huh. they're you know like kind of arguing to get the song or to get Prince to play the song. That's sort of I was Hi. thinking. Like maybe that was what happened with that song, but I guess not. So, um, yeah, I love, love mountains. I think the, the 12 inch mix is fantastic where it's got the extended jam at the end there. And, uh, I also wanted to quickly ask on parade because, uh, you've got songs on there, like, do you lie, which are quite stylistically different from the sort of more pop based sounds or pop based songs on that record. So how do you record songs like that that are like so different from the from other songs on the album and make it all fit in the end oh i was just doing the best i could i couldn't have answered that question at the time i was doing it just had to use instinct because you know i wasn't an experienced recording engineer the drummer on do you lie is jonathan melvoin wendy and susanna's older brother 
a very accomplished drummer. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. But Jonathan played drums, and he had a different touch on drums than either Prince or Sheila E. or or Bobby Z. So he was quite easy to record. Um, Prince was, as you can hear on the Parade album, experimenting with trying to bring a European flavor into his music. And this is his interpretation of that. Right, of course. So then after the... um after uh, the tour for Parade, um, the revolution sort of disbands and Prince begins work on Sign of the Times. And um, which, uh, as you mentioned earlier, is kind of sort of considered his other like masterpiece after Purple Rain. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's truly, you know, an epic record because it's a double album. So there's a lot going on. And uh, yeah, like what, uh, I guess, how, how was that album different to make than the three previous albums? Sign of the Times was quite different. It was quite different. Um, not in methodology necessarily. The introduction of the Fairlight instrument on there was a very expensive sample-based uh, computer in the 80s. That uh, was the major change, but... The loss of the revolution, which which was mutual, was really difficult for Prince. In addition, right around that time, he broke off his engagement with Susanna Melvoin. The loss of Susanna and Wendy and Lisa was very difficult. The introduction of Sheila E. to become his new revolution, his new backing band, meant that he had to focus on musical arrangements that showed off that band's talents, which were a different set of talents than Wendy and Lisa, Mark Brown and Bobby Z. So there was a lot of loss going on for Prince there. Another problem in 1987 was it was now abundantly clear that funk music, the funk dance pop music of Prince and Michael Jackson and Madonna, that's gone. We're done with that now. The music business moves on pretty fast. And by the late 80s, grunge was just beginning to raise its head in Seattle. And of course, rap and hip hop, Tone Loke and artists like that are are now truly establishing that hip hop is where we're going. And if it's not hip hop, it's going to be grunge rock. It's going to be this alternative indie rock. So there wasn't a place for Prince musically the way there had been before. So many, many changes in his life. His mood was not necessarily light during the making of Sign of the Times. Now that is to say, when Prince... um, when Prince was in a bad mood, he's not the kind of person who screamed or yelled or anything like that. That wasn't Prince. But when he was in a dark mood, he got quiet, really quiet. So I remember the making of that album as just being often somber and quiet in tone. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and you do sort of mention like how th- uh, stylistically it was quite a big change from from his other albums. And I feel like it's almost sort of the start of the kind of, of records you would hear him make in the nineties, which is very much more sort of R and B and maybe even hip hop based compared with the yeah. more pop and rock stuff that he was doing beforehand. Um, now, of course on, on the record, it was, it was a, a success. You had big hits like you got the look uh, and the title track. And I, I did quickly want to ask about you got the look because the, the guitar tone, on that song is really something else. So how, how did the guitar sort of come together on that track? 
That record was a funny one because originally it was a slower, funkier groove. It was a deep funk groove at a slower tempo, and it just wasn't working, just wasn't coming together. He knew he had a better song there than the record we were making, so he scrapped the whole top line. We sped up the tape machine, got the drums to sound... Um, a little too high and too thin for my liking, but we sped up the tape machine and then we made it a more up-tempo poppy record. And um, I think I should mention uh, for those listening and for those on video in case they're wondering why we look a little different, um, when we recorded last time, uh, we ran over time. So we're we're coming back again about 10 days after the fact to uh, to finish the episode. So uh, thanks for thanks for coming back, Susan. It's a pleasure. Um, so we were talking about Sign of the Times, and there was one song in particular I wanted to ask you about, and that was It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night, which is uh, kind of like the song, a few of the songs on Purple Rain, where it was recorded live, mm-hmm. uh, specifically at a show in Paris in 1986. And uh, But th- I think the thing that's more interesting about It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night was that it was really just sort of an instrumental jam that was turned into an actual song. So what was the process of putting that track together? So we were in the South of France shooting the Under the Cherry Moon movie. And before we left France, Prince arranged to have a, have a show at the, I think it was called the Zenith. It was basically a big outdoor tent. And uh, we had a mobile recording truck. It was from Germany. And, uh, and yeah, we, we recorded the show. Now, that groove that they used, that, that forms the bedrock of It's Going to Be a Beautiful Night, was something they just used to do in rehearsal. So you get to rehearsal, you get on stage, and Prince would want his musicians just to warm up their muscles, you know, just to, just like athletes, just just get in, get in a groove before you start drilling down on the important work. And that was the kind of groove that they would do for long stretches of time. Uh, Prince ultimately, of course, added lyrics to it and turned it into something. Then in the studio back home in the States at Sunset Sound, we uh, recorded Sheila E. doing that rap. Sheila was on the other side of the Mississippi River, which is why in the credits it says Trans-Mississippi Rap. (laughs) She was somewhere doing something over on the East Coast, and we were able to patch the phone lines and compensate for the delay. There was roughly a 500 millisecond delay coming through the phone line. We got it all in time and recorded it at sunset. It was really very fun, actually. Yeah. No, and that, I, I've often wondered, like, I wonder how they got the phone recording uh, in that song as well. Yeah, um, you know, old-fashioned analog telephone, but you hold the phone up to your ear and there's a microphone at the mouthpiece and there's a speaker at your ear. So you could patch into that phone line, or I should say you could patch out of that phone line Um, if you had a special transformer and you could tap that line with this special transformer that would convert it to a line level signal. Line level is what we refer to in the recording studio as ready to go to tape or ready to go to the hard drive. So you could convert it to a line level signal. It actually already was a line level signal. Uh, All you had to do is feed it through a transformer, another transformer, and amplify it a little bit and record it. It's not great audio quality. It's very narrow band, but it did the trick. It was a lot of fun. It, yeah, it gives it gives us gives it a bit of character too. I think. But yeah. um, the interesting thing, um, you can go on YouTube and find a clip from the performance where, like, sort of the base of that track comes from, which oh. is kind of crazy. It's just like someone in the crowd 
uh, that shot it on their own camera. But I remember finding that and I was like, whoa, that's that's kind of weird to hear it without the lyrics and that sort of thing. But yeah. yeah. We used to, we used to, in those days, anytime Prince did a show, anytime he did a rehearsal, he wanted a video camera there. Mm-hmm. So we videotaped all the shows that we did. And one time we were in Germany and uh, I had been operating the video camera and I just stepped down at the end of the show, the house lights were on and I had the cassette in my hand and I just stepped down from the front of house mixing platform in order to go backstage. And some kid ran up and snatched that video cassette right out of my hand and ran off with it. So I know a few of those things leaked. But, right. Uh, right. Um, so then after, after sign of the times comes out and, and the tour and everything, um, uh, Prince basically had his Paisley Park studio opened and you decided to move on to, to different things. But I was curious, um, did you ever like run into Prince, uh, at all, like in the years following, uh, your departure from his team? I did. I would be hired by clients to work at Paisley Park Studios to mix their record. There was a Dutch client, there was a Japanese client, there was a British band, and uh, I did some I did some did some work at Paisley Park Studios, and I would run into him. I ran into him not long after I left. After I left his employ, uh, he and I had a, a late night meeting. This was just a few months after I left him. I got summoned to Paisley Park late at night, and he um, he had one question for me. <laughs> he wanted to know if I still loved him. And I, I said, yeah, yeah, of course. And he said, I love you too. It was one of those, it was, it was really, really odd, but it was one of those moments where he didn't want our relationship to end on a bad note. And I didn't either. Um, so yeah, I, the last time I saw him was in the 90s. I was on tour with a band, the band Gagita, and we played Minneapolis and we went out to Glam Slam, his club afterward. He just happened to be there. And yeah, every time I saw him, it was very warm and loving afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what was your reaction, uh, of course, when he died unexpectedly a couple of years ago? Oh, just tragedy. By coincidence, uh, Wendy and Lisa <clears throat> from the Revolution had just spent a week at Berkeley. They just got on the plane just a few days before Prince passed away to to fly home. Uh, Wendy and Lisa and I had spent a week getting caught up and sharing Prince stories and talking about what we knew. And, of course, talking about Susanna, who was Prince's former fiance and Wendy's twin sister. Um, We hadn't none of us had seen him in a long time. Wendy had seen him the most recently, and she described a behavior that was disappointing to her. But friends do go off in different directions. So, yeah, there was that. And then all of a sudden when he passed away, uh, we were all kind of gobsmacked because we didn't realize how badly he had been suffering. That Mm -hmm. was a tremendous shame because for all the positives and the negatives of our experiences with Prince, of course it wasn't perfect, but there there were negatives as well as positives. But for all that, God, none of us wished him any harm and certainly none of us liked the idea that he was suffering at the end of his Mm -hmm. life yeah no it it is it is too bad for sure because i mean i think he still had uh quite a few like good years left and good things to do um but uh at the very least we've got the music so that's uh that's all uh we can take back i guess at this point i want to see his legacy 
be strong and be positive and not be um, any, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for him. Not that they would, but uh, he hated pity, self-pity, I should say. He felt, he feels sorry for other people, but he hated self-pity and he would not have wanted anyone to feel sorry for him. He uh, would want to be remembered as being a great musician, which he was, and um, an, an, an important one. He made important contributions to music. So I do my best to help facilitate that reputation for him. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so uh, now we are entering into our guessing segment of the podcast. Uh, for which it gets its name. So uh, I'll just go over uh, the rules for you and uh, for any new listeners we might have. Um, In this bag here is a a record that I pulled out of my personal collection. Um, I will give you, Susan, uh, three clues about the album. And then we basically play a game of 20 questions. So you'll ask me 20 yes or no questions uh, to try and figure out the, which album it is. Uh, and I'm happy to give you hints if you're stuck along the way. It's not a competition or anything like that. So, um, yeah. Uh, Susan, are you ready to guess that record? I am ready. All right. Uh, here are your three clues. This record came out in the 1970s, although it was recorded in the 1960s. It is a compilation album and two of its uh, songs were number one singles. Uh, And then the third clue, the band behind this record has been influential to artists in many other genres. Question one. Is this band based out of North America? Yes. Question two. Is this band based out of Canada or the U.S.? The U.S. Question three. Is this band primarily a guitar-based band? No, I wouldn't say they're guitar-based. They do have guitar, though. Okay. Question four. Is the lead singer of this band an iconic vocalist? I would say so, yeah. Question five. Uh, An iconic vocalist, not necessarily a guitar-based band. Did this lead singer turn into a session musician in any way? No, no. Okay, that, that steers me off course then. Question six. Compilation album in the 70s. Recorded in the 60s. Does this band feature siblings? Are there siblings? It does. It does. All right. (laughs) Question seven. Would their music have appeared on the R&B charts? Yes. Question eight. Did this band make records in a lot of different decades? Um, not, uh, not particularly. Yeah. Okay, and then goes another one of my ideas. Question nine. So they didn't make records in the eighties. Uh, no, not 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 anything noteworthy, at least. Question ten. 
Would any of their hits have been played in discos? It's probably a little too early for for disco, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Question 11. (laughs) Happy to give hints as well. (laughs) Okay, did did their music feature drum machine? Yes. Not not on this record specifically, but they did they they did have drum machines pretty early on. Okay, I think I need a hint. All right. Um I know uh I know Prince was a fan. Okay. Um and I'll think of something maybe a bit more uh bit more. Um I'll I'll give you a, a good one. They played at Woodstock. Okay, so Sly and the Family Stone. It is Sly and the Family Stone's greatest hits. <laughs> there it is, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was um, when, uh, as always, I like to, to find out what records my guest likes, just mm-hmm. to make sure that I choose a good one. And um, I found out that you were a fan of Sly and the Family Stone, and I thought that would be a, uh, a good one to, uh, to discuss. Yeah, so yeah, the, the 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 thing about siblings, I was thinking Isley Brothers. Mm, right. For a moment I was thinking Earth, Wind and Fire, but they were they were later. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all right. Yeah. Cool, cool. <laughs> and you're right. They were early, early adopters of uh drum machines, as as some bands did. They had uh, that old rhythm ace. I've got one downstairs right now. You mm. could use uh, the, the drums that came on the those organs called the fun machine. So, yeah, you could use drum machines in the 60s for sure. Yeah. Um, now, before we sort of discuss the record, uh, I figured I would give some facts to those who might not be familiar. Um, so Greatest Hits is the first compilation album by Sly and the Family Stone. Released on November 21st, 1970, the record remains the group's best-selling album with 5 million copies sold in the U.S., Uh, It features all of the group's singles released during uh, 1968 and 1969, along with three new singles that hadn't appeared on an album uh, to that point. Um, Now, I I wanted, I think it's a great, Sly and the Family Stone is a great band to talk about because uh, I think like if you're a very serious fan of music and you know your music history, you'll have heard of them. But I... I kind of feel like not many people actually realize how influential they were because they kind of brought R&B and funk and soul music to the masses in a way that hadn't really been done before. And they were also an influential band in the fact that they were pretty much the first major band to have a racially integrated co-ed lineup. Um, And, you know, I have to think kind of, uh, having Prince as a hint there, I have to think that the revolution was influenced by them because they're a similar lineup of, you know, men and women and and black and white. Mm-hmm. And Prince was definitely aiming to follow in Sly's footsteps, and he and Sly had a lot in common. Both um, had incredible an incredible ear for melodic hooks, mm-hmm. and Sly came up with so many popular melodies in the short time when he was being very productive and Prince did throughout his entire career. It's astonishing how uh, the ease with which Prince could create a melody, create a counter melody, create a harmony melody. I mean, just uh, amazing. So they had similar gifts. They both loved the, the 
not assembling a band based on race. They both loved just choosing the, the right players. They both loved outsiders. They both were happy to have a band that had men and women in it. Um, they're, you're right, they did feature siblings. Uh, Sly's sister, Rose, was, God, what a background singer she was. What a voice. She was in his band. And um, and, and Freddie, Freddie Stone as well, his brother. Stone, yeah, right. Yeah, so um, Prince's band also, when he could, had uh, Lisa, uh, rather, Wendy and uh, Susanna on stage. And Wendy and Lisa and Susanna, having been so close since they were in diapers, were almost like siblings anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the uh, uh, the interesting thing with Sly's kind of rise to success, uh, it was kind of just interesting to read about it because he started out as a, a, a radio DJ in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. And um, and it, it's also something I didn't realize was that he actually uh, uh, he wrote and produced a major hit for a guy named Bobby Freeman called Come On and Swim, which was a top five hit in 1964. So it's interesting that he was, you know, like he had some success bef- long before the family stone came along. Um, and they eventually, he eventually puts the group together uh, and their first album didn't sell too well, but then they, the song that kind of um, was their breakthrough hit was Dance to the Music. Um, and it's an interesting song because I know that they weren't very fond of that record um, when they were when they were making it. Yeah, I don't think it was one of their best, but that hot fun in the summertime is so beautiful. Boy, do I love mm. that single. And yeah. Stand and oh, there are just so, so many records that they put out in the 60s that just meant the world to me. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask, did you, so you, you were listening to them basically like at their, at their peak? On the radio in Southern California, we had a a wonderful complement of both AM and FM radio. There was a lot to choose from. I know folks in the United States, and it must've been the case in Canada as well, who lived way out in the hinterlands, didn't have that many radio stations to choose from. But if you grew up in Southern California, you had a lot. So you could hear a great variety of music. AM radio in those days, <clears throat> pardon me, AM radio played uh, really cool stuff. Not necessarily album cuts. That was for FM radio. But AM played really cool stuff. And it was not like like today's Top 40. It, it wasn't necessarily divided based on race. It, it, you'd hear R&B and you'd hear kind of country and you'd hear easy listening and all sorts of stuff on AM radio. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, yeah, going back to, um, Sly, um, once, once dance to the music came out, then they started to really get a foothold. They released everyday people, which was their first number one hit. Um, and then the stand record. And then when they played at Woodstock was really sort of when they kind of gained a national, uh, national attention, like in kind of this, you know, a revered fashion, I guess. Um, but that's, and, and that's also sort of when the greatest hits album, the story of the greatest hits album comes into play, which for a compilation record, I actually think it's got a bit of a story to it. Um, so they, they released hot fun in the summertime, uh, sort of right at the end of summer in 1969, which is kind of ironic. Um, but uh, then in December of that year, we got Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself. Uh, and then the band kind of went 
into sort of a, I mean, they were, they were still recording, but they were very much taking their time. And uh, the label was kind of desperate to get something out there, which is how Greatest Hits uh, ends up being released. Um, and uh, I, I actually really think it's like a good album in their discography because it's like sort of a bookend of their original uh, era, which was very sort of upbeat, hopeful music that was all about kind of unity and brotherhood and very, very fits in very well with sort of the the kind of themes of the 60s. But um, of course, the next album that came out after that was There's a Riot Going On, which yeah. uh, was a very dark and uh, heavy record in comparison to their earlier work. Yeah, there was, you know, the 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 racial tension in the United States um, allowed Sly and other other Black American writers to uh, stretch lyrically and kind of abandon those pop lyrics that they had used before and get into more social protest types of of songs. But then the other factor, and it was a non-trivial one, was the prevalence of drugs in the mm-hmm. late late 60s, early 70s, so many musicians were really high on such a variety of drugs. And Sly was no exception to that. And that, of course, changes your art. It changes your creativity. Yeah. No, and and that kind of ends up becoming Sly's downfall because after there's a riot going on, he never, he kind of just sort of falls apart um, in his life and and he never really kind of gets back to uh, the level that he was uh, early in his career. And I mean, you see, I mean, I've heard in today that he's basically living in a RV in Los Angeles right now, like with not much money left to his name. And it's kind of, yeah, yeah you know, it's, it's the, how, you know, music can definitely be tough if you sort of let it consume you like that. I yeah. think there are stories. Um, there are stories about him driving around LA in that RV and, and yet, you know, well, he, he he had a great run. He had a great run when he was younger, and we'll always be grateful to him for that, the music Absolutely. he Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it is uh, kind of ironic, but not too long ago, I actually watched the um, the Summer of Soul documentary that Questlove put out. And, um, of course, Sly uh, and the band played uh, at that festival in Harlem that summer in 1969, and it was a... Uh, just amazing footage to see, uh, uh, see them on stage in that period. And, and, um, the, it's, it's amazing that nobody saw that for like 50 years. Yeah. How I wish I could have been there. It just, mm-hmm. it just looks dreamy. All those incredible acts and just one right after the other. Yeah. <laughs> seeing of all course. these amazing artists. I loved uh, seeing the staple singers, seeing pops up there and Mavis, of course, and, just Stevie all, Wonder, yeah. All of it was just so damn good. That's a great, mm-hmm. great, great movie. Um, now, uh, I'm just going to pull up Greatest Hits here. I mean, so just um, on the record, you got Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself, I Want to Take You Higher, Hot Fun in the Summertime, Everyday People. Which, which, which one of those, which one of their songs do you uh, like the most, you would say? I you know I I've been thinking about that lately because people will sometimes ask what's your favorite song or what's your favorite album and I don't like to have a favorite because I have such a love for them all for different mm-hmm. reasons so I wouldn't pick a favorite but if they said to me okay of those four you just mentioned 
Three of them you're never going to hear again in your life. But what's the one that you would pick that you'd want to hear again? I think it'd be hot fun in the summertime. It's just Mm. so beautiful. I love that string line. I love that melody. But all of them, I I treasure them all. So, yeah. Yeah. It is um, funny with hot fun in the summertime because it's... uh... If you if you've heard a misunderstanding by Genesis, uh, you'll notice a quite quite a similar uh, uh, quite a lot of similarities between those two songs, which is kind oh, of yeah. interesting. Oh yeah, I didn't remember that song, and it just popped into my head. I know it mm-hmm. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I just lastly wanted to ask um, because it's a greatest hits album. I know a lot. I know there are some people that will immediately write off greatest hits albums because like. You know, it's not like a true experience or or whatever. But me personally, I actually think they're good resources for when you're when you're getting into a band for the first time to kind of get an idea of what they sound like before you listen to them further. So, yeah, I was wondering, like, do you dismiss greatest hits albums or do you are you okay with them? No, I like them for the same reason you just mentioned. So someone might turn you on to a band that you knew of, but you never really checked out before. And before deciding which album you want to invest your time in, it's kind of nice to listen to greatest hits, see what they're all about, maybe see how they changed over the years. And you might recognize that there's a certain period or era that you prefer of their work. So yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And you know, being being music business for many decades, or a couple of decades anyway, uh, I can't see anything wrong with artists making money. I just mm-hmm. don't see anything wrong with that. It's yeah. so, so hard in this business. If a greatest hits record makes you some money and gets you some attention, you, you should have that. Yeah, for sure. We have uh, reached the end of another episode of Guess That Record. Uh, I want to thank Susan Rogers for for taking the time to come on the podcast. And I want to thank you for meeting with me the second time. I will admit I was a bit embarrassed that we ran over time the, the first recording. So uh, it was really cool for you to uh, to come uh, back again. And it was just so great to talk with you because I'm I'm a big Prince fan. And, uh, you know, not many not many people have kind of the insight uh, that you do uh uh, with with Prince, so it's uh, it was great to speak with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for hosting me. I've done shows where we went for three hours and nearly four hours on one show. It just in that particular time during the week when I'm teaching, it, it can be hard to find the time. So it's not a problem going late. There's so much to talk about. So I am grateful to you for your interest and for your questions. Oh well, yeah, no problem at all. Thanks, thanks for coming on. And I just want to say thanks again to everyone who tunes in to each episode. I have a lot of exciting plans for the podcast in 2023, so you should stick around to see what happens. Uh, Make sure you leave a review wherever you listen. And if you have friends that like music, tell them to check us out. You can also follow us on Instagram at Guess That Record. Now, before finishing up, I wanted to bring up something uh, that's sort of related to the podcast. Uh, Back in November, we released our episode with Three Dog Night drummer and fellow Calgarian Floyd Sneed. Um, And on January 27th of this year, Floyd passed away, and it was a complete shock to hear that. Um, At the time of his death, I spoke with his assistant, Donna, and she let me know that Floyd's appearance on the podcast was his final interview, uh, which is something that I'm honored to have done. Um, you know, I was able to say it to Floyd in the episode, but it was so cool to 
to speak with someone from my hometown who played a part in a major band. Uh, and I'm really glad that I got the chance to speak with him. Um, I already did it at the time of his death, but I once again just want to pass my condolences on to Donna and the rest of Floyd's family. With that being said, we'll see you on another episode of Guess That Record. <laughs>